So Daniel 9, on page 823. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth, who was ruler over the king of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands, we have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, fathers and all the people of the land. Lord, Righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us, the men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far in all the countries where you have dispersed them because of the disloyalty they have shown toward you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by following his instructions that he set before us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He has carried out his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us so great a disaster that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not appeased the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all he has done, but we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made your name renowned as it is this day, we have sinned, we have acted wickedly. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, May your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Show your favour to your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city called by your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. 
Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. Verse 20. While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my petition before Yahweh my God, concerning the holy mountain of my God, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me this explanation. Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I have come to give it, for you are treasured by God. So consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to wipe away iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. After those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Selena. Let me pray first. Father, we come before you tonight with all humility an eagerness to hear your voice, a, a desire that our minds and our wills are shaped by your word, and a longing, Lord, that our prayer lives are transformed so that we pray more like Daniel. And we ask that for his name's sake. Amen. I love this quote from Paul Miller in his book, The Praying Life. It's on the screen. God wants us to come to him empty-handed, weary and heavy laden. Instinctively, we want to get rid of our helplessness before we come to God in prayer. But prayer is bringing all your helplessness to the Lord Jesus. And I love it because it just reminds me that that simple act of coming before my God on my knees recognizing my need, my helplessness, my weariness, my heaviness, knowing that my God listens and knowing that my God cares. It's the most beautiful thing, isn't it, to get on your knees and pray? And this year at Church by the Bridge, our year of prayer, we have seen God answer in the most extraordinary ways. 
We've seen God heal. We've seen God provide at exactly the right time. We've seen God protect. We have seen believers reignited in their faith. We have seen new believers come to faith through the prayers of many. We've seen people come, become Christians after 20 or 30 years or so on praying for them. See, so your prayer life is a bit like a window into your soul. That's a phrase from the great Robert Murray McShane. He said, if you want to humble a man, ask him about, your, about his prayer life. A man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. And it's beautiful. He's saying that when you're on your knees before your God, that is never a sign of weakness. That is a sign of strength. As you spend time with your God, it's like a window into your soul. Because we can all see each other read the Bible, and we can all see each other sing in church, we can all see, see each other do these things, but you alone with your God, that's precious time, isn't it? You may have heard of the preacher George Whitfield, a famous preacher who brought about the revival in the U.S. and in, in, in um, the Great Britain. He said this, People need to feel their brokenness before they can grasp the joy of God's grace and forgiveness. Whole days and weeks have I spent prostrate on the ground in silent or vocal prayer, pleading with my God for revival, pleading that people would recognize their sin and their rebellion, pleading that people would feel the sorrow of their disobedience, and then they might see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and grasp his forgiveness his love, and his grace. See, as Whitfield preached, he was covered in prayer, and God used that man to bring about great revival. J.C. Ross says this, there are few of us who really cry out to God, few of us who really do call on the Lord, and few who seek as if they really wanted to find Few who wrestle with God in prayer, and few who knock as if they were desperately hungry and thirsty. Prayer is the simplest of acts. It's simply speaking to your God. It needs neither learning nor wisdom nor book knowledge to begin it. It needs nothing but a heart and a will. The weakest infant can cry when he's hungry. The poorest beggar can hold out his hand for needs. And no time is so well spent in every day as that which is spent on your knees before your God. Our prayers may be weak, stammering, and poor in our eyes. But if they come from the right heart, God understands them. And such prayer is his delight. So my aim tonight is really simple. My aim is to refresh your prayer life. My aim is that you would leave here tonight excited about praying to your God, that, that you can pray, that you want to pray, that you long to pray. Looking at Daniel chapter 9, the year is 539 BC and Darius the Mede is on the throne. So the Medes and the Persians have overthrown the great Babylonian empire and Daniel in, in, in chapter 9 is now in his mid to late 80s. So he's not a young man, he's an old man. And he's lived in Babylon for almost 70 years. Let's think about that. For 70 years, he's been away from Jerusalem, away from the land, away from the temple. 
And, and he's watched the people of God kind of lose their focus and they've assimilated with the, with the Babylonians. But Daniel has been courageous and Daniel has loved his God and listened to his God and he soaked himself in the scriptures. You see that in verse 2. In the first year of this reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet. He's probably reading Jeremiah 29. Let me read it. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. The Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. So Daniel remembers that Jeremiah the prophet has said, for 70 years you'll be in exile. And he does the maths and you think, oh, the 70 years are almost up. So what does Daniel do? Does Daniel march into the king and says, 70 years are up, time to go home? Does he gather a group of other believers and say, let's just go home loud and proud? I love Daniel's response. Verse 3. So I turned my attention to the Lord my God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. He does what every godly person should do. He gets on his knees before his God and he pleads the promises of God. He says, God, you promised after 70 years we will go home. Lord, keep your word. I've just got a few things to say about prayer tonight. It's not one of those three-point sermons. It's just seven things about prayer from Daniel's prayer. And don't be overwhelmed by that. Just, just take hold of one of them and think, if I just grasp that, my prayer life will be different. So here we go. Daniel's prayer was fervent and disciplined. His whole manner, his demeanor, his posture was one of fervent, disciplined prayer life. We've seen in chapter 1, Daniel prayed. Chapter 4, Daniel prayed. Chapter 6, Daniel prayed. And here he is again, verse 3, turning to his Lord to seek him by prayer and petitions. Those words in verse 3 are actually emotional words. It's kind of, I'm longing for my God. I'm eager to encounter you, God. I'm I, I, desperate to, to, to be with you, my God. And he's fasting. Just a quick word on fasting. I think we're kind of suspicious or, or skeptical. The Bible talks lots about fasting. Uh, Jesus said, when you fast, not if you fast. And fasting is just that you, you, you voluntarily abstain for, from something for a short period of time. It might be food, it might be something else, but you voluntarily abstain from something in order to focus on your God, to increase your dependence on your God. And the sackcloth and the ashes of verse 3 are his attitude of grief and sorrow and repentance. Uh, John Calvin said, whenever people to are to pray to God about any great matter, it would be expedient to appoint a period of fasting along with their prayers. So that's Daniel. He is praying boldly and fervently and disciplined. And do you spot how he feels in verse 21? Flick over the page. While I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, came to me in my extreme 
weariness. And that word weariness means weary. He is tired. And you get the impression that Daniel is so weary because he's just pouring out his heart, continue to his God. He's constantly praying, and that can be exhausting. Let's keep reading about the time of the evening offering. And that really struck me this week. That is so bizarre. Because remember, we're not in Jerusalem. There is no temple. There is no sacrifices. There's no priests. So what does he mean about the time of the evening offering? For 70 years, they haven't offered any sacrifices. And then it suddenly dawned on me that for 70 years, Daniel has conducted his life, his, his spiritual life, morning, midday, evening, coming before his God at the time of the sacrifices. When I was ordained 17 years ago, one of my ordination vows was I would say the daily office, the prayer book daily office, morning and evening prayer. And I remember thinking 17 years ago, wow, that is bizarre. But it actually, it's been, it's been amazing. To start your day with a disciplined prayer and to end your day with disciplined prayer has been amazing. I just wonder whether much of our prayerlessness, it's not a lack of desire. We actually want to pray. It's just that we don't set aside the time to do it. So Daniel's prayer was disciplined. Daniel's prayer was scriptural. It was God's word that drove him to pray. I hope you realize that. You know, when you're reading the scriptures, that you, you hear from God and you want to talk to him. So he's reading Jeremiah, and that prompts him to pray. And he, he, he responds to Jeremiah just like he responds to the book of Moses, saying, this is God speaking to me, so I want to talk to my God. And the prayer that he prays from verse 4 onwards is just soaked in Scripture. He quotes Scripture. He uses phrases from Scripture. He gives examples from Scripture like the Exodus and the curses of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And it's almost like when Daniel sits down to pray, what comes out of his mouth is the Bible. He is so soaked in the Word of God that he's pleading the promises of God and he's petitioning the revelation of God. It's, again, it's a really, really simple point that, that your prayer life will be much, much richer <laughs> the more you know the God of the Bible. The more you soak yourself in, in the truth of Scripture and understand what God has really said and who God is and, and what He's promised you, the richer your prayer life will be. If you want to be satisfied with a shallow prayer life, then don't bother to read your Bible. But it's really hard to read the Bible and to meditate on the Word of God without wanting to just turn it back to God in prayer. Number three, Daniel's prayer was personal yet corporate. You notice how in verse four he said, I prayed to the Lord my God, and I confessed. But the whole of his confession is corporate. We have sinned, verse five. We have not listened, verse six. Verse 11, all Israel has broken your law. See, Daniel understands that being a child of God means he's no longer just an individual. He is an individual, but he's more than that. He belongs to a family. He belongs to a people. 
And we live in a very individualistic society, don't we, where we just think about me, myself, and I. And we can bring that attitude to our church, but actually we're part of a body and we're part of a family. And so when one person is burdened, we all feel that weight. And when one person's rejoicing, we should be rejoicing with them. And when one, one person sins, the impact of that sin can infiltrate to the whole body. And so he prays a corporate confession. We've stuffed up. We have failed. We've been wicked. And if you know the book of Daniel, you're kind of thinking, but Daniel really hasn't. Daniel's been this exemplary model of the godly Christian man. But he's part of something bigger called the church. Let me ask you about your prayer life. In your personal prayer life, how often do you actually pray corporately? Corporately for things beyond yourself, for the wider church. If you notice it in our confessions here at church, we don't say, I have done this. We say, we have sinned. In our creeds, we say, we believe in God our Father. In the songs that we sing, we do have the personal I, but we also have the we are praying to you, our God. Let's get that, that balance right between, yes, my prayer to my God, but that corporate element, praying for God's church. Number four, Daniel's prayer was covenantal. Big word, just means relational. That little word in verse four is so important. He says, oh, Lord, and the sense there is that kind of that, oh, my gosh, my Lord, you are awesome, you are great. And you keep your gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. I hope you understand that word covenant in verse 4. It's more than a contract. It's that, that God has committed himself to his people uh, with a promise that he will not and cannot break. It's a covenantal love, an unconditional love, a steadfast love. God has said, you are my people and I am your God. Let me just read from Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. It's beautiful. God says, I passed by and I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love. And I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you. And you became mine. You became mine, says God. And that's why in verse 23, the angel says to Daniel, for you are treasured by God. Do you see that? Those three words, treasured by God. And Daniel was because he was in this covenantal relationship. He was loved by God. He was treasured by God. He was precious to God. Do you believe that about your God, that he has entered into a relationship with you with a covenant and a promise that he will not break and he cannot break? Oh, we try to walk away and we are faithless. But God's always faithful, isn't he? And when God made this covenant, these promises, he establishes rules, commands, ordinances, and laws, not, not so that we can actually enter the, the covenant relationship, but so we can enjoy it. He said, if you really want to enjoy your relationship with me, then, then do this and don't do this. But if you persist in doing the things that I tell you not to, you won't enjoy it. 
it is, it is a bit like you know, the, the orphan who's taken off the street and placed into a new family and a, and a new father and a new mother. And the father and mother say to the, 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 their new adopted child, we love you, we are committed to you, that we've signed the paperwork, you are my child, and we really want you, you to enjoy life in this family. So here's a few house rules, and we give them to you for your good. That's the covenant relationship. God says, you're mine. You're precious. You're treasured. But please obey me so you enjoy the relationship. That's verse 4 again. With those who love him and keep his commands. See, without love, keeping commands is just legalism. And without keeping commands, love is just gushy sentimentalism. See, Daniel knew the God he was praying to. He was a covenant God. And I need to ask you whether you know that. Whether you've understood that the God that you talk to is the one who loved you, who cherished you, who died for you at the cross 2,000 years ago, and despite your faithlessness, is always faithful to you. And he's always there with arms wide open, ready to forgive you. And ready to listen to you. Do you know that? Because I think if we did know that and really believe that, we'd rush to God more often than we do. Number five, Daniel's prayer was confessional. That's the big focus of this prayer. He says, God, we have sinned. What Whitfield said, people need to feel their brokenness before they can grasp God's grace and forgiveness. There's moments in church where I or someone else says, oh, we're going to say a confession. It's going to come from the screen. And before we confess our sins, I'll give you a moment's silence to think before God all the things you've done wrong this week. I'd, I'd love to have a sort of x-ray into your mind as to what you're thinking at that moment. Now, some of us just rattle off all the things we've done wrong because we feel the weight of our sin. And other of us just stand there going, oh, I'm not too sure. This is a long silence. This is awkward. See, see confessing our sins is, is actually vital to our relationship with God. Tozer said, do a thorough job of repentance. Do not hurry to get your repenting over with. Hasty repentance means a shallow spiritual experience. Let godly sorrow do her healing work. It's our wretched habit of tolerating sin that keeps us in our half-dead condition. Well, Daniel was very thorough in his repenting. He made no excuses. He didn't duck the responsibility. He says, we have sinned. Look at the words he uses in verse 5. We've sinned, he said. That's the, the attitude. We've ignored our God. We've neglected to do what God says. We've said to God, I don't need you, God. We've done wrong, our actions, our lifestyle, we've offended our God. We've acted wickedly. We have blatantly done things which are disgusting to God. We've rebelled, he says in verse 5, that, like, like the teenager who tries to fight against their parents and deliberately do the opposite. We have turned away that active turning your back on God's word. You say, I know what the Bible says, but I'm going to do the exact opposite. And I don't care. In verse 6, we haven't listened 
to the word of God. We've actually chosen to close our Bibles and listen to the world. He says, verse 11, all Israel has broken your law and turned away and refused to obey you. See, time on our knees before our God, our holy, righteous God, acknowledging our sin, our wrongdoing, our rebellion, our wickedness, our shame, it's not a waste of your time. It's actually the most beautiful thing you can do to enjoy your relationship with God again. C.S. Lewis said, to confess your sins to God is not to tell God anything he doesn't already know. He knows it. But until you confess them, there's a, a gap between you. When you confess them, you become, they become the bridge and you enjoy that relationship again. You know that. Think about human relationships. Now, the person who has offended you, until they come and say sorry and admit their wrongdoing, that relationship is never going to be restored. Now, as a parent of, of children, and you know, when my child does something wrong, and I say, say sorry, sorry. What are you sorry for? That's the question. What are you sorry for? Be specific before your God. What exactly have you done in the last 24 hours that have offended him and, and been against what his word says? Church, I wanted to encourage us that on your knees before God, pouring out your heart and confessing your sins before him, before you give God your shopping list of what you want, will actually enrich your relationship with your God because you'll appreciate his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace and that relationship so much more. So Daniel's prayer was confessional. It was theological. Daniel knew the God he was praying to. And he lists lots of attributes of God. I want to just focus on two the first one he lists is actually quite surprising. Verse 7, he says, Lord, righteousness belongs to you. Lord, you are righteous. You have integrity. You have consistency. Then when David sinned with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, he says, against you, you only have we sinned so that you are right when you speak and justified when you judge. Remember that? Well, Daniel says the same thing. He says, God, you are, you are right to judge us. You were fair when you got angry with us. He says, when you disciplined us by taking us into exile, that was the right thing to do, God. You told us, you'd warned us, verse 11, in the law of Moses from Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, you told us that if we refused to, to obey you, you would curse us. Well, you just kept your word. You are right. You are faithful. You are just. Perhaps if you saw that God was always right and there was always consequences for what we do wrong, then you might actually come to God and say, you know, I have really stuffed up, but you're always righteous, and you're always fair, and you're always just. And you still love me. So you've got to believe that God is always righteous. And the second thing to believe that God is always compassionate and forgiving, verse 9. 
See the words, verse 7, righteousness belongs to you. And verse 9, compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God. That's a beautiful part of God's character. Listen to Jeremiah 31, verse 20. He's talking about rebellion. He says, my inner being yearns for my people, and I will truly have compassion on them. That is our God. He, he loves us. He is compassionate towards us. He actively pursues us and says, come back to me. Come on. Enjoy the life that you're missing out on. And that word for forgiveness in verse 9 is actually the word pardon. It's a much stronger word. So forgiveness is between two equal parties. You forgive each other. But pardon is only something which somebody in authority can actually give to you. You owe a debt, and you can't pay the debt, but you're pardoned of that debt. That's what God says to his people. When you acknowledge your sin and your shame, God is compassionate, and God is forgiving, and God pardons. Not because we've improved, and not because we've got better, not because we've sinned less, but because God is forgiving, and merciful, and compassionate and pardoning and God does what verse 16 says that his anger and his wrath has been turned away he does not punish us as we deserve because as far as the east is from the west so far as God removed our sins from us so the bigger your view of God his righteousness his compassion his pardon his might. The bigger your view of your God, the richer your prayer life will be. I remember as a, a new believer going to prayer meetings in my church in Oxford and learning how to pray in many ways. And I used to get really frustrated <laughs> by the first 10-15 minutes of prayer meetings because they used to spend all this time adoring God, you know, praising God for his goodness and his mercy and his faithfulness and his grace and his sovereignty. And I suddenly going, I know all that stuff. Let's, go on, let's get on with the business of praying and list all the stuff that we want from God. And as I grew as a Christian, I actually understood that before you give your list of what you want from God, if you spent time adoring God for who he is, yes, his, his kindness, his compassion, his forgiveness, his righteousness, his mercy, his sovereignty, if you fill your heart and mind with all these truths about God, then actually all the things that you want from him actually then are put into perspective, aren't they? So please pray theological prayers. And then lastly, pray expectantly. Daniel prayed really believing that God listens, really believing that God answers. Uh, verse 17, therefore, our God, hear the prayer. He's not saying to God, come on, God, open your ears. He's saying, God, you're a God who hears, so please hear. Verse 17, show your favor. Literally, make your face shine. Remember the Aaronic blessing from Numbers? May the Lord make his face shine upon us. And verse 19, the, the tone there is not a sort of a demanding. It's kind of a, Lord, please hear. Lord, please forgive us. Lord, please listen. Please act. Not for my sake, verse 19, but for your sake, because your will be done and your name be hallowed. See, Daniel prayed expecting God to listen and to answer. There's an extraordinary verse, verse 23. At the beginning of your petitions, 
an answer went out and I've come to give it. That is so encouraging, isn't it? From the moment Daniel started to open his mouth to pray, God had already answered. It's just that he was waiting for that answer to be revealed. I found that incredibly encouraging this week. Uh, Rachel and I have been praying very specifically for about three months now, every single night. Every single night we seem to pray the same prayer. And I read that this week and thought, God heard my prayer and answered my prayer the very first time that we prayed it. He's just making me wait until he reveals the answer. So why do we bother saying the same prayer every night? We bother because the more you pray it, the more dependent you become on your God. If you stop praying, you start to think that you're in control and I would, and I would fix this problem my way. And that might not be God's way. But that daily, persistent coming to God again and again and again, knowing he's already answered, actually grows your own dependence on your God. And the amazing thing is that God did answer Daniel's prayer in the most extraordinary way. It's kind of weird, verses 24 to 27, but actually it's really simple. He just says, verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed, 77s, literally, and, and seven in the Bible is perfection or completeness. There's going to be a time, verse 24, when, verse 24, rebellion will be brought to an end, and all sin will be stopped, and all iniquity will be wiped away, and we'll enjoy everlasting righteousness. That, that's what we're looking forward to, a time where there is no sin, there is no rebellion, that iniquity has been washed away and wiped clean, and we are perfect in God's sight. This is kind of your mathematician's dream. There's 77 of those, and, and they're split into three lots, verse 25, Seven weeks, and then 62 weeks, that makes 69, and there's one week left. Do you remember when I preached through Isaiah last year, I talked about the three mountains of fulfillment in prophecy? Anyone remember that? The historical fulfillment, the Christological fulfillment, and the eschatological fulfillment. That, that's just what's happening here. The first seven is the historical fulfillment, verse 25, when God's people are brought back to Jerusalem, the temple is rebuilt. That, that, that happened in history. But their sins hadn't been stopped. And the rebellion was still there. And their iniquity had not been wiped away. And so after 62 weeks, the second period, the Christological one, verse 26, Christ the Messiah will be cut off from the land of the living. And Christ the Messiah will have nothing. He'll be stripped and he'll be flogged, and he'll be mocked, and he'll be hung up on a cross to die, and he'll say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even when Christ died, have you stopped sinning? And raise your hand here today if you've stopped sinning. Verse 24 has not been fulfilled yet, has it? Yes, we experience the, 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 the presence of forgiveness, but we're still sinners. And so we're longing for verse 27, the one week to come, when he will put a stop to sacrifice and offerings and the abomination of desolation will be no more. That is the eschatological fulfillment when the end will come 
and verse 24 will actually happen, that we will stop sinning and all our iniquity will be wiped away and we will be perfect and righteous in God's sight, but that's then, not now. But what verse 24 to 27 does, it actually changes the way that we pray because because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because his blood was shed for you and because he loves you, you can approach your father at any time in any place, no sacrifices, just with a, a contrite heart. And you can come before your God with all your needs and all your petitions and you have access to the throne of heaven. No priest to go to, just come to Jesus, fall on your knees and ask him whatever you want. And again, when you've grasped that relationship with God, I do pray that our prayer lives would just be so simple and just part of your everyday speech. Prayer is the most wonderful gift. Time on my knees. One of the best things someone ever gave me was my prayer desk in my office. I love it. Just stop. Get up from my desk, get onto my knees at my prayer desk and just spend time with my God. I'll end again with that quote. God wants us to come to him empty-handed, weary and heavy laden. We want to get rid of our helplessness before we come to God. But prayer is bringing all your helplessness to Jesus. I think the right response is to pray. We're going to do that now. I'm going to give you a moment by yourselves to confess your sins. Actually name them. You might want to get on your knees. It's hard with these chairs, but get on your knees if you want to. And just spend just one minute confessing your sins to God. And then we'll say a corporate confession. And then we'll have a time of just prayer, open prayer, and then we'll sing.